Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's great to see a good turnout. Uh, it's one of my privileges at the school to uh, direct LSE 100, although I have to admit uh, Jessica Templeton, the deputy director, does most of the work. But I get the uh, nice bits, such as introducing our speaker this evening for this continued celebration of LSE 100. Martin Wolf is chief economics commentator at the Financial Times. He's a commander of the British Empire for services to journalism. He has a Doctor of Science Economics from the London School of Economics, appropriately. And he was a member of the UK Commission on Banking, 2010-2011. He's the author of a number of uh, influential publications on why globalization works, on fixing global finance, and he's going to talk about his recent book this evening. He will be signing it after the uh, lecture, The Shifts and the Shocks, what we have learned and what we still have to learn about the uh, financial crisis. This book has been widely applauded by many distinguished economists on this side of the Atlantic and on the other side, notwithstanding the fact that it seems to pose a number of challenges to the discipline of economics. So I very much hope you will join me in welcoming Martin Wolf. Okay. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, may I congratulate the winners of this rather daunt, what sounds like a really daunting competition. I was thinking as I sat there that um, I did my last exam at a university when I was 25, and that is a very, very long time ago. And, but I can still remember the ecstatic feeling as I left, uh, as I left uh, the examination hall uh, after, as was, must be true of all of you, having spent... Um, year after year doing exams, saying, I will never do one again in my life. So I appreciate uh, success, but I don't envy you the process. Um, the, uh, I also should confess, because it wasn't made clear, that my doctorate from the LSE is honorary and therefore essentially a fraud. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, when I received this, I can't remember exactly, but I've received a few, and I've always said it seems to be cheating, uh, to put it mildly, to get an on, a doctorate without actually doing any work. So um, I regard them as essentially fraudulent, but very much more pleasurable than the ones that require all the agony that I was far too lazy to undergo. Um, uh, so I never, I hadn't intended to be an academic, I didn't do a doctorate, but I'm actually of the generation in which quite a few people didn't do doctorates and had distinguished academic careers. My wife is one. So what I'm going to do uh, tonight um, is this. I presented my book actually here just over a year ago in a conversation with Adair Turner um, um, former chairman of the Financial Services Authority, who has just also written and published uh, a, a very interesting and important book, not on a very dissimilar theme. I don't know whether he's already presented it here. Um, but anyway, that's what we did a year ago. I don't intend 
to go over that territory again. There might be two or three people who were there last time. And anyway, I feel that all of you should have read the book by now. So, um, so after all, you are at the LSE. So, uh, but, so what am I doing here, you will wonder. Well, but, uh, we are publishing a, a paperback version. And I was told by my publisher very sternly that we couldn't sell a paperback version if in some measurable way it wasn't different from the book, the hardback, that we'd already been selling for a year. So what I did in the end, uh, after much thought, was to write a fairly lengthy chapter of what we know now, what, what more we know about this crisis and its aftermath than we did when I finished this book, which was uh, really at the end of 2013. So that was roughly when the writing process had been completed. And so over the summer, I put together a chapter which is called Afterward. Uh, and uh, what I'm going to talk about is at least some aspects of what I say in that chapter. And I think it's interesting to me, to my mind, because it underlines, but also in certain ways modifies uh, what I said in the book itself. Um, and in many respects, it was actually quite helpful. It's a more helpful period, because when I was writing in 2013, um, a number of issues were unresolved, particularly what was going to happen in the Eurozone, and they've become a little clearer since then. So, and I've called this, I called the chapter The Long Goodbye, um, uh, which uh, is the title of a Raymond Chandler novel. Um, and I thought it captured very well the fact that, for reasons which I think we still don't fully understand, and which are being very hotly debated, it is clear that the crisis has had a very deep, very prolonged, indeed perhaps permanent, impact on our economies, both uh, the developed economies that suffered the crisis, but to some extent the world economy. And that raises a whole host of questions. So what I'm going to do in my talk is cover essentially three areas. Uh, the shadow itself, the, the legacy of this crisis, as we, as it, we, if we look at it now or as it was last summer, um, then some of the evaluation of the policies that were adopted. Can we say more now than we did a couple of years ago about the nature, extent, and issues raised by the policies? And finally, I'm going to return a bit to, a little bit, with a little more clarity, to what I think the lessons were and the fears about the future. And so let me start then with uh, the shadow. Um, so start with the developed countries. We are now in a period in which the developed countries are mostly recovering, that in the simple sense that the first difference of GDP is positive. That's a very weak form of recovery. It doesn't tell you anything about where the starting point for this recovery is in relationship to the pre-crisis conditions. And it doesn't mean that the growth is back to the pre-crisis growth rates. In fact, uh, the latter isn't true pretty well anywhere. Virtually every economy is growing more slowly than it was before the crisis. But there is a, f a positive first difference. 
it is a worry that, so far as we can see, potential growth has durably collapsed. Uh, that is to say, we knew that demography was going to be more difficult for the developed countries because the baby boomers are retiring. But in addition to that, there's very clear evidence that productivity growth has slowed sharply since the crisis. Um, in addition to that, we are beginning to see uh, quite problematic conditions emerging in emerging economies. And I think part of that is due to the way they got through it. And the crucial part of the way they got through it was that China pursued a set of policies which in important respects replicated our own mistakes. Not in every mistake, respect, but in some. And that has implications for the future as well and quite disturbing implications. And the result of all this is that, as I said, this crisis has cast a very, uh, a very deep shadow. So this is a watershed moment, as I said. The developed countries are slowly recovering, but potential growth has collapsed. Emerging economies are badly hit, and China has entered a difficult transition. So this gives you a very simple idea of what's happened to our economies um, compared to what was ex confidently expected as recently as 2007. So the red line, uh, which is of course hidden behind the white and the, uh, the, the dark green and the light yellow one, uh, in, uh, which is the IMF forecast and really every other conventional forecaster, basically assume that growth will continue in line with trend up to 2012, 2013 and so forth. When the crisis hit, people realized something pretty grim had happened, but they then assumed that after a couple of years of slowdown, the growth would return to the previous rate and it would just continue on up. The most recent forecasts I've just got here, autumn 2014, this is from an IMF chart, basically show, one, there was a huge recession, completely unexpected in 2007 and in 2008, although in the autumn of 2008 it was already really emerging. It was a huge recession, but as, from which there was a very weak recovery with growth rates in the developed world which have never returned to the pre-crisis level. And that continues to be the case today. So this is what I mean by a long, a long shadow. We have failed to return in any way to the previous levels or growth of GDP. When we look more closely, and this is not a chart that had been in my original book, and I think is very striking, we discover a, a deep and, I think, very disturbing uh, divergence between the fate of the United States and the Eurozone, the two largest Western economies, as once this crisis hit. So in 2009, that was already clear when I wrote the, um, the book, there had been this gigantic decline in GDP and real domestic demand in the US and the Eurozone. Interestingly, it was bigger even in the first round of the crisis in the Eurozone than in the US. It's probably not um, such a shock to you, but it is important to note that something that looks like this hadn't, anything like that, hadn't happened to the developed world since the Second World War. This was a completely unprecedentedly deep recession. 
After that, the United States, in terms of both domestic demand and GDP, recovered. The recovery was the slowest recovery the U.S. has experienced, as far as I can see on record. And the recovery in the 30s was interestingly stronger, but from a much, much deeper recession. And the U.S. economy has been expanding at the rate of about 2% a year since the crisis. Um, it, it's very weak, but it is a recovery. The Eurozone has had two crises. The first, the global crisis, and then very, very clearly in 2010 and then above all 2011, a second crisis, which was the Eurozone's own crisis, the crisis of the internal disequilibria of the Eurozone. And uh, the important thing to notice about the Eurozone is that in the second quarter of, this is, goes up to the second quarter of this year, Eurozone real GDP was still below where it had been in the first quarter of 2008. So it hadn't met the first requirement for a recovery, and this is the whole Eurozone, namely to get back to the starting point. The even more interesting thing to my mind is what happened to real domestic demand in the Eurozone, which is the purple line. And you can see in the second quarter of 2015, it was still 4% smaller than it had been in the first quarter of 2008. And at the current rate of recovery, it's going to take till 2017 or possibly 2018 before real demand in the Eurozone returns to the level. So this is clearly a lost decade. This is by any standards a lost decade for the Eurozone. It's an important point about this. I won't be, have the time to go into it any further that a lot of the adjustment of the Eurozone has taken the form of an improvement in its external accounts. Because real domestic demand has been so weak, Eurozone producers have had to try and find external markets, so they've been shifting output to the world markets. That has allowed GDP to grow more successfully or to, to be stabilized more successfully than real domestic demand. But of course that has shifted a lot of the adjustment of the Eurozone to this crisis onto the rest of the world. It's weakened demand net for the rest of the world. So these are very divergent experiences with the Eurozone clearly experiencing a much deeper and more prolonged slump. This looks really like a slump than the United States. This, the third point about what we know um, and has become uh, very clear, is the extreme divergence in the experience of individual countries, and that's particularly true in the Eurozone. So when I talk about the Eurozone, I'm really aggregating across very, very different economies. Now this uh, chart shows GDP per head, which is a simple measure of welfare, obviously it doesn't allow for the income distribution, but the uh, the advantage of this is, and it focuses on um, seven relatively large economies, it includes all the economies in the Eurozone which are big enough really to have an impact on the total picture. And what you can see here, and that um, for Germany there really wasn't a crisis. It had a, a recession in 2009, but GDP per head has recovered strongly. Uh, it's, it has remained extremely competitive, locked in a weak euro with a highly competitive real exchange rate. It's done very, very well. Um, the United States actually has done worse than Germany, though much better than other eurozone countries, uh, with this modest recovery in GDP per head. 
Obviously, U.S. has a fast-growing population by developed country standards, so uh, GDP per head doesn't grow as fast as the GDP figures would seem to suggest. Then you get France, which has been completely stagnant since 2011. Uh, UK was stagnant for years, has had a modest recovery. I'll come to that again. And then you have two really important economies which experience extremely deep slumps, Italy and Spain. Spain in 2014 and 2015 is recovering. Italy is still really in a slump. And the divergence between Germany and Italy is a matter of 20 percentage points of GDP per head over seven years. So it's a dramatic divergence and is a reflection of how deep the structural problems in the Eurozone have been in dealing with this crisis. Now a further feature, as I've said, so this is a very deep slump, very divergence in its impact, um, with very feeble recoveries in the Eurozone and really not a dramatic recovery in the US, but still a progressive one. Now, an important feature of what's happened, I've already mentioned, is what's happened to productivity growth. Now, this, this is a very simple chart, which I've taken from the Council of Economic Advisors, which appears in the book, but it brings the picture out very well. Over the 50 to 2007 period, we had on average relatively fast productivity growth. It had actually slowed, this is slightly misleading, in the last previous 20 years, from actually from the 70s onwards, but still relatively fast growth. You can see that annual rate of labor productivity growth in the 2010 to 2014 period was essentially zero in the UK and Italy, 0.4% uh, in Japan, 0.6% uh, in France, 0.7% in the US, 0.8% in Germany. What does this mean? Well, one very simple way of thinking about this is that given demography, that means that the trend growth of most European economies is not much more than 1%. Our growth rates are now roughly to 1%, and that has very, if this continues, very significant implications for future fiscal sustainability uh, as our populations age. Um, and this is sort of more or less across the board, but it actually strikingly was particularly grim in the UK and Italy. Since then, productivity performance in the UK seems to be improving a little, but this is, for the longer term, very disturbing. In the short term, it had the beneficial effects if you have this very low rate of labour productivity growth and these dramatic declines in real demand that we didn't have quite the level of unemployment, at least in a number of these economies, you might otherwise have feared. Now, now I'm going to get more to the policy area of this. Why did productivity growth collapse so much? Well, one reason, and there's no doubt about this, is that investment collapsed. After the crisis, because demand was so weak and because the financial sector was so dysfunctional, basically firms stopped investing. The contribution of investment to the growth of labor productivity, the, the contribution of the accumulation of capital, pure investment, became negligible in almost all developed countries. Actually negative in the US, which is a really rather remarkable. Zero in Japan, very, very low in Germany, uh, UK, Canada. And this contribution, this collapse in investment, and therefore the collapse in the contribution of investment to productivity growth, is one of the main reasons for this very long shadow that this crisis is casting, particularly on potential output. 
Now, I've, here I've talked about the advanced economies, uh, but I now want to turn briefly to what this crisis has meant for emerging economies and a very specific and important challenge that has arisen for the emerging economies in the more recent period. This chart gives you some indication of how consistently a mainstream forecaster, the IMF, you couldn't be more mainstream than the IMF, but other standard forecasters tend to follow similar, um, similar methodologies, how consistently surprised the IMF has been on the negative side by the development of the entire world economy since the crisis became really obvious. So what I've got here is successive autumn or fall forecasts of the growth over the succeeding five years for the world, for the advanced economies, and for the emerging market economies. And this is what I mean by casting a long shadow. Basically, at every stage, they have downgraded growth. They've downgraded the growth of the world economy by more than a percentage point, the advanced economies by roughly half a percentage point to about 2% and the emerging market economies even more. The emerging market economies, of course, clear growing faster than advanced economies, but they are looking uh, increasingly, um, they are, their growth performance is increasingly deteriorating. Now, I think we have to understand uh, both why the, the emerging economies got through the crisis relatively smoothly, because remember, if you look back at their forecasts in 11 and 12, the growth rates were still expected to be incredibly high, uh, and, then the threatened, uh, and then the threatened slowdown, and particularly the prospects for the future, what I think of as the second round of the world crisis. And so I'm, for that purpose, I'm going to focus on just one question, so there's a limit to how much I can discuss, um, which is what is happening to China and above all, what is the structural challenge China faces in rebalancing its economy and why is it slowing down so significantly. This is really a fascinating and I think incredibly import important and often misunderstood story. During the period before the crisis, when the Western economies were growing relatively strongly, China uh, generated an enormous export boom and an enormous current account surplus and an enormous trade surplus. In fact, in 2007, it was very close to 10% of GDP. So you had, and that's an absolutely enormous level for such a big economy. And if you look at spending on the Chinese economy in 2007, it has a very fascinating structure. By 2007, investment was up to 41% of GDP, one of the highest levels ever seen in a major economy, probably the highest. Consumption was only down to 36%. It had fallen from 2000 by about 10 percentage points of GDP as income in China was increasingly transferred at the margin from households to corporates. Public consumption had also shrunk, and the demand was being sustained to an also by investment, as I said, and by um, uh, the, the trade surplus. After the crisis hit, the trade surplus disappeared, world demand disappeared, so that the Chinese had to find, the Chinese government, very, very quickly an alternative source of demand to offset this huge 
decline in external demand. So what the Chinese government then did between 2007 and 2010, very, very briefly, is uh, pursue an enormous expansion in investment relative to GDP. It shot up from 40%, 41% to 47% of GDP, so nearly half of China's GDP was spent on investment. The growth rate didn't rise, so the return on investment was, was falling, that's pretty clear, uh, and there's a lot of evidence that there was a tremendous amount of waste in this period, an enormous credit expansion was associated with this, enormous construction boom, a lot of it pretty wasteful. But this is what sustained demand in the Chinese economy. But of course that reached a limit. Uh, you can't increase investment faster than GDP forever. It becomes absolutely ludicrous and returns collapse. And since then, they've stabilized. Now, China's intention is to reduce investment further. It has to reduce investment further because an economy growing at 6 or 7%, as its now trend growth looks like being, investing 45% of GDP makes no sense. And investment growth is indeed slowing. And again, another reason is they don't want another huge credit boom. They've already had that. They've got a large debt overhang. They don't want it to happen again. But then that raises the question, how do you sustain demand in an economy which has this characteristic? So this looks at the contribution to Chinese growth in GDP in terms of growth between investment and consumption. And you can see that consumption itself has slowed while investment is also slowing. There's a very real risk, in my view, that investment growth could actually go negative. Uh, the reason, very obviously, is that there's huge areas in China of excess capacity, and the infrastructure boom is also slowly coming to an end. If investment growth were to slow significantly to, uh, to bring uh, investment down to a more reasonable share of GDP, maybe 35%, perhaps even lower, then the growth de would depend overwhelmingly on consumption. And if the economy is to grow at 7% a year and consumption is much less than half of GDP to start off with, consumption has to grow at about 10 to 12% a year. And this is a tremendous challenge. The moment the Chinese economy is clearly slowing, the Chinese government is clearly trying to stimulate it, but the growth slowdown that has already occurred, and particularly in investment, which was very resource intensive, has created a collapse in commodity prices and spilled over onto the emerging countries. And that's one of the reasons, one of the big reasons, we're beginning to see these progressive declines, significant declines in emerging market growth. And I expect that slowdown to continue over the next couple of years. It's sort of the next stage of the crisis. So that's the long shadow of the crisis, what it meant for us, what it's meant for productivity, the divergence in performance across developed countries and particularly inside the Eurozone, the very weak Eurozone performance, and then some features of what, how the emerging countries got through it, but also the challenges. Let me just now talk very briefly about some of the policy response and the legacies they've created. So the uh, most important point, of course, and it has to be underlined, that when the crisis hit, the financial sector stopped functioning, we had not only enormous complete uh, uh, socialization, nationalization of the liabilities of the financial system, a comprehensive guarantee of the entire financial system, we also moved into the most expansionary monetary policies in the history of the world. Uh, what you see here are the 
the interest rates offered by the major central banks. And you can see that at the moment we are expecting the Fed possibly to raise rates by an exciting quarter point from zero to quarter point. But, but essentially everybody's at zero or near zero. The ECB tried very hard, God bless it, uh, in tw 2011 and, uh, to raise rates from 1% up to 1.5%. Then they had what I think of as their oops moment. Uh, they realized they were getting into a terrible crisis. There was a huge crisis in the sovereign debt markets at that stage in Spain and Italy particularly, and they had to collapse it down. And uh, so now we have basically a free money environment. If you think that's very, very weird, I just remind you um, that I'm put in for this reason. Japan has been in a near-free money environment since uh, 95. 20 years of free money. And the remarkable thing is that it has next to no impact. The general worry of all our central banks is that inflation is too low. Now, I think that's beginning to change in the US. I'd like to underline what an extraordinary environment this is, and therefore how profound this crisis was. In the case of the UK, we've had a central bank um, since the late 17th century. It was founded in the 1690s. And we have wonderful records for the UK of the rates at which the Bank of England was prepared to lend to other banks. The bank rate, it used to be called base rate now. And basically, until this crisis, the lowest interest rate the UK central bank, the Bank of England, ever offered was 2%. It had never gone below 2% through world wars and Napoleonic wars and Great Depressions, and now it's been half a percent for the last, um, what's, um, seven, nearly seven years. So it's a very extraordinary phenomenon, how radical the policies are and how ineffective, in a sense, they've been. And they've been reinforced, of course, by these massive expansions in the balance sheets of the central banks. Uh, this is the balance sheet relative to GDP of these central banks. You can see the UK and the US both increased their balance sheets to about 25% of GDP. The ECB got it to 30%, let it go down, and now are pushing it up. And of course, Japan is now going off to the stratosphere with its new QQE policy of up to 70%. So you've got the most radical monetary policies with incredibly limited effects on output, some effects on asset prices, but this is a very surprising world. And it's a reflection, I think, of the depth of the structural... Uh, um, uh, slump into which we've fallen, what uh, Larry um, uh, Summers uh, refers to as secular stagnation um, following Alvin Hansen. Then obviously the question is, well, how well has this worked? And here I'd just want to refer to one really very interesting experience, uh, which is that of our own, my own country, the UK, and we are there, so let's look at this. One of the big issues is whether we made a biggest mistake on austerity, on fiscal austerity. I'm going to come to that in a moment. I think it's a significant element. I don't have the time to go into detail. But just to bring out what a significant crisis this has been, it would look different for the US, but the UK is a really interesting comparison. So I've got what happened to real GDP per head in this most recent crisis and in the Great Depression for the UK. 
Okay. Now, the Great Depression didn't originate in the UK. We were an importer of this. We didn't have a financial collapse. That is an important to note. But it was an enormous world crisis. Uh, and what is perfectly clear is we got through the Great Depression, at least in terms of real GDP per head, it's not so clear for unemployment, much better than we did for this most recent crisis. So I am really genuinely surprised by the number of people who are convinced we've had a wonderful recovery. Uh, the, uh, of course, it's true unemployment is very low, but unemployment is very low because, as I've already pointed out, productivity has stopped growing, and that's an even bigger worry. It is fair, however, to say that at least up to now, this doesn't seem to be as much, this weak performance um, due to the austerity of the previous, uh, of the coalition government as we thought. And the reason for that is they didn't say, do, thank God, what they said they were going to do. So the, uh, here I put forward, but this is relevant to the future, um, the actual cyclically adjusted net public borrowing for the UK uh, as forecast in June 2010 and the most recent March 2015 forecast. And you could see that back in June 2010, the Chancellor, the same Chancellor as today, told us that if we didn't have a radical tightening of fiscal policy, we would become Greece. And fortunately, after a year of experience with of that policy with no growth, uh, namely the first year, he decided actually this wasn't a real risk and he was of course right and he changed his policy so we didn't have the austerity we might have had. In the Eurozone the austerity has been much greater with the results I've already shown you. However it is important to note and this is very significant for the future that in the March 2015 budget the Chancellor does promise a uh, really very massive tightening over the next three years and it will be very, very interesting to see whether that can happen without, again, a significant negative impact on output as happened in 2010 to 20, uh, 2011. One thing that we can say uh, is that whatever, you know, that, which is very important in considering these policies, the policies in the fiscal side that we adopted, is that despite failing completely, very rightly in my view, to achieve his fiscal targets. The, the government promised a massive fiscal tightening which never happened. Um, gov borrowing costs for the British government have remained incredibly cheap, uh, in fact unprecedentedly cheap, uh, uh, as you can see with long-term interest rates close to 2%, which are among the lowest bond yields in the entire 300-year history of the British bond markets, just spectacularly low bond yields, absolutely no sign of inflation fears. The whole uh, set of fears in the markets are clearly of deflation risk. So that's where we are. That is, I think, gives us a clearer picture of what has happened uh, in this crisis. Now let me finally turn briefly into a sort of update of what I think are the lessons of this immensely significant global event, which I think is now going to be followed by quite a few years of real difficulty in emerging economies um, for reasons I've tried to outline. Well, the first one point I would make is that recoveries do ultimately happen. At least first differences ultimately become positive. Recovery depressions don't go on forever. And that's particularly true if you have this sort of massive monetary support that we've had in this case. But nonetheless, the crisis has been very deep 
and the long-run consequences look very damaging, particularly for potential growth and, above all, for productivity growth. The long-run costs are so high, I think at least in part, because the policy response was inadequate. Uh, I think we, we, and above all in Europe, above all in Europe, they moved to fiscal austerity too early. In Europe, it couldn't be prevented because there was no fiscal system at the Eurozone level. Austerity was necessarily imposed on the people who couldn't borrow anymore, and it wasn't offset. So the net impact of fiscal policy in the Eurozone was dramatically tightening, um, much less so here, and that um, could not be, and this is the second main point, adequately offset by even really quite loose monetary policy, or what looked like very loose monetary policy. The third element, I think, that is now particularly clear, again, particularly on this side of the Atlantic, is the reconstruction of debt and of the financial sector was too slow. So if you reconstruct debt and the financial sector very slowly, monetary policy is not sufficiently aggressive, you tighten fiscal policy too early, you end up with a lost decade. And that's essentially what's happened in Europe now. And the political consequences of that seem to me to be very deep. So if we have another crisis like that, the implications are pretty clear. We have to be much more aggressive than we were, even more aggressive in preventing this sort of prolonged slump that we've seen. Indeed, we should be planning for the next crisis because I'm afraid there will be one. And uh, it, it seems to me clear we're going to have to adopt, if that does happen, even more radical policies than in the past, and than in the past time uh, if we're going to avoid a huge recession. In addition to that point, I would uh, insist that the Eurozone crisis is, alas, not fixed even now, so many years after the crisis is over or oh, the, the, the worst of the crisis became obvious. Greece is, of course, still definitely not fixed. The Portuguese have just elected a government which effectively wants to end austerity. The political strength of the Spanish government and of the Italian government are highly uncertain. The resistance in France to the continuation or even the beginning of the sorts of policies that they're supposed to follow at the um, Eurozone fiscal policy um, requires strong austerity is enormous. It looks as though um, the willingness, the political willingness to continue with the slow growth austerity environment just doesn't exist. And that's going to be show up in electoral politics and therefore in my view the fundamental problem in the Eurozone is not fixed. Furthermore, the Union is still not credibly irrevocable and it doesn't have the fundamental institutions that I think a Federal Monetary Union needs and I've discussed that in my book. And of course a very big issue that has arisen in the process of this crisis is that enormous amount of power and authority has bled from national governments which have basically been rendered powerless um, without moving as a democratic structure to the uh, federal level. So I would stress uh, the, uh, the extent to which in my view the Eurozone crisis is not over and that's a very, very big worry for me particularly along with many other problems they face. Let me finally touch on a few fears which have become, to me, a little clearer since I completed my book. 
Um, and the first is a point that I've increasingly come to share with Adair Turner, and it is very well laid out in his book. Essentially, one of his points is that it seems that to generate demand in line with potential growth, which itself is slowed for reasons I've already discussed, seems to require large build-ups of debt somewhere in the system. Debt has to grow faster than economies. And that's a fundamentally destabilizing process because debt can't grow relative to the economies indefinitely because you're going to run out of solvent borrowers sooner or later. And that is what happened before the crisis. Part of the reason for this must be the nature of the distribution of income and spending across the world. And this is only both the distribution between countries, but even, but even more the distribution between capital and labor and among labor. It looks as though the distribution of income that is being generated by our economies now is not one that leads to strong and buoyant demand. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is a fundamental weakening of investment demand across most of the world. And the one part of the world which really had very strong investment demand, China, it's now weakening. And a particular difficulty uh, associated with our debt dependence is, a key point in my book, is that, of course, our monetary system is inherently debt dependent because nearly all the money in our economies is created as a byproduct of lending by banking institutions. And banking institutions' money creation, which is their, is their, are their liabilities and they're backed by their assets, which are their loans. So if monetary growth is to be sufficient, it is basically a matter of logic that debt has to rise, uh, it seems, even far if money... money um, demand is such that it needs to rise relative to national income, then um, credit has to rise relative to national income as well, creating these debt dependencies. More broadly, making our economies less de debt dependent has become very, very important. I've already mentioned one of my, so that's the first fears is debt dependency. The second big fear I've already talked about is the fragility of the Eurozone monetary system. A federal monetary system without any form of federal institutions is, I think, a very fragile structure, and the political frictions within it have grown in the crisis. The third thing that seems to me very important, and perhaps that fits with many of the things that have interested you in this broader course, is the role of elites and the perception of elites as a result of a crisis. And one of the arguments made in my book, but it seems to me to become even more obvious how significant this is, and you can look at most, most obviously at what's happening in the Republican presidential uh, nomination process at the moment, is the profound raging populism that has emerged and the hostility to elite-run politics and elite-run economies. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty clear that in the perception of many of the public, and completely understandably, the elites were responsible for the economy that blew up. After that blow up, we had these huge rises in unemployment, in many countries still very high, real wages have stagnated or fallen, and econ economies have shrunk massively relative to expected trends. And this is a background of fundamental elite politics. 
In a world like that, in a world like this, the stability of the underlying political order cannot, I think, be taken for granted. So I think it is becoming increasingly obvious, at least to me, that the crisis raises many questions, a lot of them about the causes I haven't discussed because that's in my book, but it's becoming clear that even though we're seeing the glimmerings of recovery now in the US, even to the point that they're talking about raising interest rates from zero, but we remain in a very extraordinary economic world, dependent on incredibly expansionary monetary policies, which are actually remarkably ineffective, with a fundamentally sluggish demand, as Larry Summers has pointed out, but even worse, real weakening in trend productivity growth. It's very disturbing, and it's up to your generation to change all this. Thank you. Yeah, right, I was feeling uh, rather optimistic this morning, but, uh, <laughs> but it's your generation apparently that's got to put the world to rights. Okay, so uh, let's take some questions. We've got about 25 minutes. I'll take three questions at a time, and Martin can decide whether he wants to answer all of them or uh, partial responses. Somebody up from there. Uh, there's two ladies in the uh, front here, please. <clears throat> and can Thank we, you. Can uh, we keep to uh, questions and uh, not lectures, please? Thank you. Snappy questions. Yes, since I'm not of the generation that you expect to solve this problem, but would still rather like to have it solved within your and my lifetimes, what are the more radical policies which you would now advocate, especially given the problem of getting them through some governments who would have to eat rather a lot of words to take them. And are you, if you were rewriting your afterword after the afterword now, do you think the uh, results of the last six months, particularly for China and maybe for Brazil, would make you even more pessimistic than you appear to be? And uh, one row behind? Oh, I've got one there. Right. Um, I was just wondering, to what extent do you think the um, divergence that you talked about of countries within the Eurozone, so the difference between um, the futures of Germany and Italy and Spain, to what extent do you think that indicates that the Euro has failed at least some of its member states as an economic and political project? And the third question, one in this vicinity. Oh, right at the back. A philosophical contribution. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you can say something. There is a big concern about inequality right now in Britain and many other places. And if you have any consideration on that, and I have a specific question on this, if it would be possible to distribute uh, capital and property in Britain, for instance, directly, not redistribution policies, but directly, for instance, not by renationalizing the railways or any other means of production, not either by selling the Royal Bank of Scotland to wealthy individuals, but rather distributing capital and property directly to the workers, for instance, the unemployed and the uh, poor families, for instance. And that, I guess, would change more the, the kind of concerns you were addressing, keeping the government small. So you reduce bureaucracy. Well, that's the question. Thank you. Okay. So 
radical policies and uh, divergence. Well, those are certainly radical policies at the end. So we'll come to that. Um, some of them fit together. Um, well, if you... If you uh, there are so many different questions. But let's suppose I accept that at the moment we have two problems. Um, one which is relatively easy to fix and one which is not. The one that isn't is, I think, the underlying slowdown in potential growth. And at this stage, I would say we don't have a very good handle on why it's happened and uh, whether it's durable or temporary. Optimists would say that um, investment will rise once people, businesses begin to be more confident and that will start improving productivity growth again and also help with demand. And also that there are lots of new technologies being developed. Uh, they might not yet be showing the impact on productivity we would like and expect, but in time they're going to. And therefore this is a temporary productivity slump and we will get a return to what we think of as more normal rates of productivity growth. I'm just focusing on the developed world at some point in the next few years. Uh, in other words, this is a temporary phenomenon. It's a very long temporary phenomenon. Um, uh, that would be the optimistic view. The problem, however, is that I think that economists know remarkably little about what determines underlying productivity growth. Most of it is put into the box of technical um, total factor productivity, that's the residual, and the residual is a residual for a reason, which is, we, d it's, it, it's the, we don't really know why this is going on. So uh, economists can tell you some things, and uh, I have friends who would tell you there are some aspects of support for science and development, um, policies that are pro-competition, and so forth, which will tend to, might, um, uh, improve productivity growth, but we can't be confident. On the demand side, I think it's easier to see what we would do if this set of policy doesn't work and we are going to be driven back into, um, into structural stagnation, um, leaving aside the redistribution point, uh, which is the... Um, I think the next stage of this uh, demand story is one or other version of helicopter money, and uh, which is basically money is created and handed directly to the public. The people's QE, but not for infrastructure, just for the people. That would, I think, be what you would want to do, and a number of countries have done that in the past quite successfully, notably in the 30s. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but that's the thing you would probably think about next. Uh, you asked whether I would be more pessimistic. Well, in my speech, I was more pessimistic than in the afterwards, so you probably got most of it. I think the, it has become more obvious that we got through the crisis at a world level much less badly than we might have expected because of China. And unfortunately, it only became clear to me about three years ago, and progressively more so, I fear, how unsustainable the Chinese solution turned out to be and that is I think what the present administration of China believes. They, they think that um, the previous administration made very serious mistakes and the result is um, 
since I don't see China's growth accelerating significantly, where is it really? Nobody knows. Somewhere around six, five, six, perhaps, perhaps a bit lower. Could easily go lower. That's an environment in which an enormous of, number of commodity exporting countries, and you mentioned uh, Brazil, but most of Latin America, a lot of African countries, and of course uh, Russia, uh, Australia, Canada, I mean a lot of countries are adversely affected, including all the debt that was borrowed by these businesses in these countries. It's to some considerable extent, back my commodity revenues. So I think there's a lot of financial pain and adjustment to go with this, and that's one of the, re the main reasons why my expectation is that we're going to continue to have bad news on the forecasting front for the next couple of years. Third question, is the Eurozone a failed project? Um, I think so, yes. Uh, the... Well, let me look at it. It's very difficult. There's a perfectly good argument against me, which I will come to, which is what the, was the alternative. Um, but the idea of the Eurozone was that it would generate, this is very clear, not just that there will be an end to exchange rate crisis, but it would generate greater financial stability. Very clear. Uh, they had lots of crises they wanted, which were exchange rate crises. They wanted to avoid them. The idea also was that it would integrate the capital markets, it was a very explicit aim, and in the process generate large improvements in efficiency and large transfers of capital from capital surplus countries to capital deficit countries which would be productively invested and therefore reinforce the convergence process which had been one of the real successes of the EU in the post-war era. Um, those are two very, very big aims, right? So the question is, were they achieved? Well, instead, I've made this point frequently in columns and also in the book, instead of having a great big massive exchange rate crisis, which they would have had in 2009 and 10, which would have ended with a massive series of devaluations and a lot of shocks, um, but everybody would still have been their domestic currency, so the debt would have gone down in value with the currency in all the capital importing countries. Um, the DMARC would have been effectively revalued by 30 or 40 percent. Uh, 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 it would have been a big blow. The German producers would have had to move out of Germany and start investing more in Greece, uh, Italy and so forth. But the, the, the depth of the crises we saw would not have occurred. Furthermore, um, uh, the lending would have been overwhelmingly, as lending tended to be, in the currencies of the borrowing countries, and that would have also worked very, very well, I think, for, for them. So the, 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 they, instead of having a brief, massive currency crisis, they had a prolonged, colossal debt crisis and financial crisis, sudden stops and reversals. And, of course, the problem now, I didn't have time to go into this, is all these debts are denominated in euro. The countries that have to gain competitiveness are having deflation or very low inflation. So though the interest rates are very low, real interest rates aren't so low, and the economies are growing very slowly. So the debt problems, if you look at nearly every um, country in the eurozone crisis, they have more debt now, private and public. That wasn't true for Spain. Spain has less private debt than they had before the crisis. It's a bigger problem now than it was. And have the capital flows generate increased efficiency? Well, obviously not. They finance property booms 
um, in Spain and in Ireland, or uh, uh, public debt explosions in Greece, complete waste. So I would say that, and finally, did it achieve political integration? That was one of the big aims. Well, what it's done is make everybody hate everybody else. That doesn't seem to me very desirable. So I consider the Euros... I was against this um, uh, pretty consistently. Made six months' mistake, which I can go into. But the... But uh, I had no idea how bad it would be. So I think the trouble with it is, though it is a failed project in my view, breaking up is almost impossible. So the only sensible turnover is now to make it work. But they're a long way from that. Finally, interesting question. Well, I think inequality is quite important. Now, I'm going to treat the capital and property redistribution question as a serious question in economics. Right, so not a philosophical question uh, of some kind. Now, uh, and I'm going to leave aside my own politics completely. If you want to redistribute assets in a way that is, achieves your redistribution goal and doesn't destroy incentives for the future, incentives matter quite a lot, obviously, because you want people to go and create capital afterwards, right? and you want them to make transactions afterwards, then it's really, really important for your redistribution to be credibly one-off. And that's not just a theoretical notion, it's happened. So to give you a very, very good examples of a credibly one-off redistributions after the Second World War, there were massive land redistributions in Japan and Korea. I can also mention other examples, India after independence. And these were mostly land redistributions because most of the capital that was left in these cases was land. That basically, we'd bombed all the capital away in Japan. There wasn't anything to redistribute, or not much. And the key to this was there was a credible regime change. What was the credible regime change? They'd been conquered. And, uh, and that allowed very, very large shifts in asset distribution. And you could credibly say, it's not going to happen again. Because that regime, it's a new regime, it's been done, new constitution and so forth. In the normal coinage of democratic politics, it's, to my mind, impossible to make this sort of thing credibly one-off. So you need a revolution. A revolution has to be a decisive event, but the revolution must be one, since I'm talking about a revolution which will go on being capitalist afterwards, because I don't want to full socialization, obviously, I think that's wildly inefficient. Uh, uh, this revolution has to promise that afterwards it's going to be really, really, property is going to be really, really safe. So you need, uh, you need this to be a very strange sort of revolution. So in theory, uh, if once every couple of hundred years you have an exciting event of this kind which shuffles all the property and can credibly say, and for the next 200 years, it's all going to be pretty stable. You can make your contracts, and they will hold out. You could make it work. Unfortunately, I can't think of many countries that fall into that category at the moment, but that's your political challenge. Okay, we have a gentleman up there with his hand up, a white uh, shirt. Uh, oh, Hello. well, come on. <clears throat> the stewards are making the decisions. Me? Yep. You, sir, please. Off, off you go to ask a question. Oh, goodness sake. Okay. Thank you very much. 
Uh, my name is Heide Rieder from uh, Bain & Company. So it was a very interesting lecture and very shocking too, as uh, the, book the book title says. Um, and it's even more shocking when we compare it on the longer term to the GDP growth uh, since the Industrial Revolution. That was always 5% or above uh, in the industrialized world. So the point which I don't get is the key reasons that drove GDP growth to be that high since the Industrial Revolution technology, uh, knowledge exchange, uh, increased trade of, of flow of people, ideas, etc., are still happening and even increasing now. So I always thought, okay, maybe it's because of the population uh, growth going down and, and that piece of the equation uh, falling away. But you're actually showing that it's not only that, and productivity growth is indeed decreasing too. So what is it that, despite the increased technology, knowledge, uh, etc., uh, makes uh, GDP growth now maybe become a new normal, which is way lower than what we've seen since the, since the Industrial Revolution. Thank you. Okay, we'll go back to the chap who originally had the microphone. Thank you, Martin. Um, I, I think that, to me, the most fundamental question that, that you've raised in today and, and probably in everything I've, I've read from you is, is this, is this unsustainability of, of the monetary system. Now, at the same time, though, I find it very hard to reconcile that with, with your, your support for quantitative easing. Uh, so my, my question is, will we be sitting here in 10 years' time and after all sorts of magic be talking about uh, deficits of the, of the central banks when they run out of assets? Um, they have some kind of pure helicopter money. Secondly, do you see any, foresee any, any, any potential for uh, currency crises that force action upwards in interest rates in any particular economies? And thirdly, do you think that, if I may, um, the, the, the counterfactual is that actually we could be in deflation and would that not have benefited people earning rather than with assets instead? Thank you. Okay, do we have another question on the balcony? Hi. Uh, just one question from me. Um, <laughs> do you think that uh, Yellen is making a mistake by effectively promising that the Fed will be able to raise rates in the short term? Snappy question. Thank you very much. Martin. Okay. Um, on the first question, I think your figures aren't quite right. So um, the relevant way of thinking about GDP growth since the Industrial Revolution is probably in terms of GDP per head, um, because population growth numbers have changed over this period, in the, if you call the frontier economy. So the world, we're thinking about the world frontier. There's also, this is very, very important, obviously, because the world frontier in GDP per head or output per head or productivity of your worker has moved, I'll come to this in a moment, consistently, not pretty consistent over two centuries, um, and lots of countries haven't benefited from that. There's also huge catch-up potential. And China is a dramatic example of catching up in that, according to the figures we have, over the last 35 years, GDP per head in China has gone from about 3 or 4% of US levels to about 25. So that's a catch-up story. At the frontier, GDP per head uh, was probably growing about 1% a year in the first 
60 years of the, say, the first half of the, tw of the 19th century, perhaps a little bit more, not much, um, from the Second Industrial Revolution on, as 1880 onwards, to for about 100 years, it seems to have been growing at about 2% a year, GDP per head. And here, that's the U.S., basically, because from about 1880 onwards, the U.S. was the frontier. But up to then, it had been the U.K. So GDP per head was rising at 2%. Population growth in the early periods was about 2%. So the U.S. growth was 4% in the late 19th century and early 20th century for those two reasons. It slowed as population growth slowed. Immigration weakened to about 3%, 25 3%. So it's not as, it wasn't five. Uh, a number of continental economies had 5% growth after the Second World War, but they'd fallen far, far behind in the interwar catastrophe and the war. And so they had that for about 25 years. France and Germany, uh, Netherlands and Italy all were growing sort of 4 or 5%. That neighborhood for about 25 years. But that's a very extraordinary number. That's aggregate. It's not GDP per head, which was lower. So I would say... 2% GDP growth is a reasonable estimate of the long-run trend for most of the late 19th century and 20th century with a fantastic instability around it, particularly associated, of course, with the Great Depression. Uh, now it looks at the moment to be about 1%. So the four, it's about halved. It's not fallen by 80%. And these are only recent trends. Now, will it go back to 2% GDP per head growth? It's certainly not doing that in any developed country. The last time anything like that happened in any developed country was between 96 and 2003 in the US, which is a big developed country, which is associated with the internet boom. So the answer to your question is, at the moment it's growing at about 1%. In the UK it's much less. We hope it will grow 1%, but I'm talking about the US. Um, uh, perhaps a little less, not much. Uh, could it go back to two? Yeah, I mean, uh, but for that to happen, there has to be a wave of technological improvements which affect the bits of e large bits of the economy. Now, I'd like to make a point here which is not often noted in these discussions, but seems to me a very important trend factor. I know uh, we're running out of time, but it's incredibly important. For productivity growth to be very rapid in an economy, it has to be fairly rapid in big chunks of the economy. That's pretty obvious. And the sector in which productivity growth has been fastest, consistently, the big sector, is manufacturing. But manufacturing in most of our economies is now down to about a seventh of the total economy. It's really small. In fact, manufacturing, it's a point made by my friend Dean Julius 25 years ago, is becoming like agriculture. Agricultural productivity is gr growing like mad, but it doesn't matter. It's less than 1% of GDP, at least in aggregate productivity. So, so health sectors are bigger than manufacturing now. Whole health sector, in the US, they're two and a half times, twice as big, roughly, but slight exaggeration. And the problem is, and this is where we should think about this, I think, I'm, this is my change of my view in the last three years, not a part of the book, which is, if you think about growth, almost by definition, over time, the sectors that become bigger and bigger and bigger are the ones where productivity growth is very low, provided the demand for them is strong. Their relative price rises, but assume the price elasticity of demand for them is very low. And that's exactly what's happened. What are these sectors? Health, education, caring for children, 
caring for old people, growing like mad. But these are sectors that are really, really hard, we find, to raise productivity in. Or if we do raise productivity, we just want much more of it. So uh, in health, I think it's, there is evidence that there's improved productivity in pretty obvious ways. So I think we have a real problem, and it may be that even if we have all this marvelous new technology, uh, short of artificial intelligence, generalized artificial intelligence, and the replacement of humans by machines in all respects, which seem to be very unlikely, we're just in a low productivity growth world. And this is the reason. Not that there's been this total collapse. We continue to do wonderfully the things we did wonderfully, but it doesn't matter so more. Um, unsustainability of the monetary system, currency crises, deflation. Okay, I can't go through all of that. Um, the problem with the monetary system of bank-backed money is that ultimately these institutions are in competition with one another and are not in, un, not, don't receive unlimited backing by the state. And the result is that if people decide that their asset side is unsustainable, they're going to demand cash for their money. And in a generalized flight of this kind, you get a panic. And the central bank, if the central bank is prepared to put unlimited resources behind it, the government ultimately, then it's not a private monetary system at all. In other words, having the private competitive sector providing money is a really messy way of doing things. So that just seems to me the nature of the thing. Now, I won't be able to go further into that side, uh, but the government can replace this perfectly well as long as it doesn't allow the money supply to grow madly in relationship potential output. And the main reason for not having government back money, government created money, is that people worry about hyperinflation. And the, the ultimate question is, can we have create institutions which discipline that possibility? That's the big issue that anybody thinking about replacement of... Anybody thinking of doing 100% reserve money, for example, that immediately leads you to government-created money, and that's about whether you can control the central bank. Um, deflation. I have no problems with deflation if the equilibrium real interest rate is positive. But I actually believe that the equilibrium real interest rate is negative. And the reason I believe that is I've come to the view we suffer from a structural excess at the world level of savings relative to investment opportunities in the present period. If the fundamental equilibrium real interest rate in the long run is zero to negative, then we have a real problem with deflation. But that's an empirical question, and I could be wrong. Um, uh, um, I always say that with... with uh, I do mean it. I could be wrong, but it isn't likely. No, I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. But that's, these are the issues. Uh, but we have currency crises. It's very difficult to have currency crises uh, if everybody's pursuing the same policies. I think the, uh, the, the form the currency crisis could only take is, is, a, is a hyperinflation one, namely a generalized flight from money. And I see no reason for that to happen as long as the relevant money supply, the relatively broad money supply, isn't growing very fast. Final question. Um, is Yellen making a terrible mistake? I have friends who think she's making a terrible mistake. And uh, the, the, the answer to this question ultimately must be, what will people, in the, will people think a quarter point rise, let's assume it's a quarter point rise in interest rates, means? How do you interpret? What is its signal, right? Um, if it signals... That, which, and this is a point I made in a column I wrote in September, that this is the beginning of many, many r such rises. And therefore, there's going to be a really significant monetary tightening in the US. 
um, over the next year or two, then I think it would be a serious mistake. If, as Janet Yellen is, keeps on assisting, the implications are that this is the beginning of a very slow, very long-term process in which rates might still be below 1% a year or two from now and possibly below 2% four years from now, it wouldn't matter much. And the difficulty is that the Fed, I think, has lost the ability to control in any real way how the markets interpret their actions because the Fed doesn't speak with one voice in any coherent way. So it could turn out to be a serious mistake, and it might not. And at this stage, I think we honestly don't know. And at this stage, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time to bring our proceedings to a finish. Uh, if you would like a signed copy of the paperback and extended version of Martin Wolf's book, they are available outside. I think you have to buy them. And then you come in here and get the great man's signature free of charge. So before uh, we depart, may I ask you to join me in a warm round of applause for Martin Wolf for a very spectacular lecture.